Hey everybody, uh, I am just pulling in Balaji. For the first time I actually used Colin's new feature where you can actually tag the guest when you set it up, but I'm not sure that I actually pulled him in, so let me go find him. Hey Balaji. All right. Great. Hey, did, but I, out of curiosity, did, did you get pulled in the moment that the room started? You are the first person to use the new call-in feature of me tagging you when I when I created the room. No, I was actually confused at first because I saw the like your old thing with Ryan Holiday at the top of the feed. Right. So I clicked into that. I was like, wait, did I get the time on or something? So there should be some banner or something like that that appears. It just, you click into your get dumped in. It's minor UX thing. Anyway. Um, well, I think I think some of the call-in founders are actually in the audience, so I, I it was a good time to mention that feedback. Anyhow, here we are. <laughs> sure, great. Um, it's a good product. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I've been very impressed by it, actually. Um, so, yeah, hey, uh, so welcome, everyone, to the Pull Request Show. I think it's it's probably going to be a pretty full house uh, today. Balaji, you, I think you and I have actually done live audio before on Clubhouse at some point, um, and, and we also recorded an interview that I think took three hours, but I never managed to transcribe because it was just so long. But that was mo- months and months ago, and I'm glad we managed to to speak again. Um, and I know I'm I'm sure with you the topic is going to be wide ranging. Um, I, I sort of set up the topic as the metaverse because it's a little bit timely because of the metaverse news. I also had this post in in pull request that came out this week. One version came out on Barry Weiss's thing. The sort of more director's cut version came out on pull request. Um, I, I think I think you managed to skim it. Some of the people in the audience probably read it or at least saw it. And um, you know, it, it's funny. Um, it, it's just I'm I'm as obsessed I think with you are. If I was just rereading your Wired piece from 2013. I hadn't realized until you you forwarded it to me a few days ago that you had actually written a piece showing that you were obsessed with the same thing I am. And and just to summarize, I think both your take on it and my take on it, which are very similar for for the audience, um, I think we're both fascinated by this sort of decoupling of the digital and the physical. Um, I think of it also almost historically when you look back at. Um, it's, it's funny, historically, it's a little ironic. They happen almost at the same time. The first sort of, the, the first time that information was traveling faster than sort of Adams could was when the telegraph lines were set up, usually a- along the same route as the railroads in the late 19th century. So it's an interesting thing in which the movement of both bits and atoms suddenly became very, very fast, which is around the same time that time zones actually became a thing. Because again, I often mention the time zone thing just as a way to anchor it. We're so used to information moving instantly but time zones, the notion that like I have to worry about what time it is in New York or L.A., or there needs to be a standard time for these 15 degrees of, of longitude, that was only invented in the 19th century. And in fact, wasn't even widely used until the early 20th century, because just nothing moved or happened fast enough that I had to care. Everyone just set their clock to local noon, and that was it, right? Human life was very anchored to the physical. Um, and the key yes, thing it was, is... It was yeah, because Right, because it, right, it technically had to be. That's right, exactly. Um, and that's interesting because, of course, I mean, someone like you, Balaji, who's lived between two worlds of like India and the U.S. or someone like me, Latin America and the U.S., like we've seen a little bit how things like culture and morality and politics tend to follow the sort of contours of language and politics, right? Like historically, that's been the case. But again, with <laughs> with this 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 business, this thing that we're all holding in our hands as we're having this conversation, and the fact that everyone in this room is spread over the entire globe, right? That is that has changed the nature of 
the sort of virtual worlds that we construct for ourselves, and they have nothing to do with the colored square on the map that we're standing on, right? And I think uh, underneath yeah, a lot fact, of... Go ahead. In fact, actually, just to elaborate on that, even many years ago, um, you know, I asked some of our founders in, you know, in my portfolio and in our venture portfolio to grasp the flags. That's to say, even back in the early 2010s, I was observing that, for example, a GitHub comments thread or Hacker News comments thread or Twitter comments thread, if you actually showed uh, the flags, the countries that people were posting from, or you put those dots on a map, it would not really look like a country. There was this sort of assumption that everybody in the conversation was American. Really, the only assumption was everybody in the conversation was an English speaker, and it's a very different assumption. Even if those people were familiar with America, even if... Uh, you know, like American high schools or whatever are beamed to them, you know, via sitcoms. They were familiar with it. And so it appeared they were American, but they really were not. And I think that's something I've been tracking for a long time. And, you know, at some point, you know, the Anglosphere may flip and become the Indosphere because the majority of English speakers online, depending on what you define as English speaking, will be of Indian descent, arguably already happening. Um, so I, I don't think people have really captured this in their heads, like what that really means when America is culturally acted upon rather than actor, you know, like Squid Games is like an export from Korea. That's like V0.1. People are mad, obviously, about like Russia or whatever. But there's there's a lot more quote, foreign influence, direct influence that will happen culturally over the years to come. It's already happened. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and we've seen this before, right? I mean, there are twice as many Spanish speakers in Mexico as there are in Spain. I mean, there's 10 times as many Spanish speakers in Latin America as there are in Spain. I mean, cultural cultures often lead that legacies. But 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 just to hone in a little bit on the specifics of this, as you said, this has been a long time coming, right? So this is not necessarily a novel observation, but I think it, it definitely is getting to sort of a keystone moment. Um, in, in the piece I published today, I set an example of a random friend. I don't name him. It's funny. He he read the piece and he's like, oh, wait, I think I know who this is. And it's a buddy of mine who lives in, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Loudoun County, I assume, that, that county in Virginia that has all this CRT drama around it where the school district meeting, everyone is like this mayhem thing, right? And he's like a totally normal guy, you know, wife, marriage, mortgage, you know, a totally normal, non-ideological guy. And he's pulled his kids out of the school district because he just can't create political consensus and comity with like literally people who are socioeconomically almost identical, literally down the street from him, right? So it's no longer the case that we have this sort of national political mania, right? National politics historically has been somewhat almost religious infused, ideological, et cetera, while local politics is a little bit more sane, right? In the sense that you're trying to solve like the pothole problem or the school problem, but it's getting to the point where even within a, a given county of Virginia, it is the case that the sort of crack up between the virtual and the physical has already happened, right? And like literally you go down one door in one street in this county and you just have completely different views of the world to the point that like they can't agree on, okay, we're going to build a school system so like both our kids can go. That That's just not really becoming possible anymore. So that's just one example of, you might have more to add there, Balaji, because you've been thinking about this longer than I have. I mean, the fundamental thing I've been thinking about for many years is, you know, Peter Thiel and Tyler Cohen and actually a less famous but very, very good J. Storrs Hall's book, you know, Where's My Flying Car? You know, th those three have made the case that I think, you know, pretty, pretty definitively in the early 2010s that innovation in atoms has slowed down since 1970 and innovation in bits has sped up. And the way that I have been, what I've been working on for the last, you know, several years is how to use that innovation in bits to re-accelerate innovation in atoms. 
And the fundamental kind of, you know, realization there for me is, you know, basically that you need digital consensus. You need a meeting of the minds before you can move things around the physical world. Just to elaborate on that, like, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, you can build a billion dollar startup from your laptop and you need a billion permits to build a shed in your backyard. Okay, so the digital world, the reason we can do what we do there is you are completely unconstrained. There's no building codes and how you set up your server farm or your load balancer. There's, there's nothing like that. And uh, it's completely opt-in where every single person who enters that virtual environment is effectively taking sort of a, you know, conscious risk, buyer beware, this is a startup, it could crash, lose your data, whatever, whatever. Whereas in the physical world, you can't even, you know, go outside. It, it, is, a, it is basically a read-only environment, okay? One way of thinking about that is, yeah, you can move your chair around your apartment, but much more than that, not really. It's not like you can knock down a wall easily and put in an extension. You can, also can't do public-spirited things. Like, you can't go outside and put up a stop sign or, uh, you know, like even, even cut the grass or something like that. Nor would you even think of doing so because in a large city, um, you know, first people would look at you like you were crazy. It's a low trust environment where nobody trusts their neighbor to do anything. And the only actor that is capable of doing it, which is the state, has, you know, in the case of San Francisco and many other cities, had dereliction of duty. It's just basically stealing money for itself, you know, $12 billion and the streets are filled with poop and needles. And so the, the reason this happens is because the physical world, the people around you, they're just anons who you don't know. And instead, you know, people in the social network, 3,000 or 10,000 or miles away, all the people hanging out here. And the way that we reconcile that is we use the digital, we use mobile, we use search, we use social to re-congregate in the physical world in aligned communities, kind of like Burning Man, except Building Man. You're not just doing it for a week. You're doing it, you know, sort of persistently. And I had this graph in 2013, I think still holds up today, which essentially observed that the scale and duration of cloud formations taking physical shape, there's no upper limit. Did, did we talk about that? The cloud Um, I learned of that from your piece in Wired, but maybe you should reiterate it for the, uh, for the audience. Sure. So, so I, I define a cloud formation taking physical shape as a group of people who met online first, okay? So that they're, the links between them were digital first, and then that materializes into the physical world. So the simplest is, you know, two people meeting on LinkedIn and getting together for like a coffee meeting or something like that, okay? So that's two people, the scale is two people, the duration is an hour or something like that. But you can increase it, you can have, um, like 10 people coming together for an hour. And that's like a, uh, you know, like a happy hour online. Oh, hey, let's, you know, tweet up or something like that. Right. Uh, but you could also have a hundred people coming together for a day. That's like a conference that is advertised online. And then you can kind of move further and further. For example, if you have, um, like a giant riot, you know, you could have hundreds of thousands, even millions of people coming together for an hour. It's very large scale, short duration. Or you could have something like eHarmony, which is two people and they come together for 10 plus years. So that's small scale, very long duration. And so the interesting question is what's in the lower right corner, which is very large scale and very long duration. And that's what I call, you know, cloud towns, cloud cities, cloud communities. And 
you know, the, you know, Burning Man is like two weeks and 100,000 people. But what is like one year and 100,000 people look like, you know, semi-persistent settlements. It's basically the reason I call it cloud formation taking physical shape. You sort of, sort of, you can sort of visualize this thing materializing out of the, out of the ether into, you know, physical form, right? And, you know, if we, if we can do that, if we can make that happen, a lot of the stuff post-COVID has basically accelerated this. Um, you know, for example, Airbnb, they recently mentioned that people are just now perpetual travelers, okay? They are digital nomads because they don't need to be in one place. They can travel the world and they can hop from place to place. And so people are booking things on Mondays and Wednesdays and it doesn't matter. And people don't really care where they are because there's only three locations now in the office, same time zone and around the world, right? Um, go ahead. Yeah, right. I mean, one of the, I think, evocative phrases you use in your piece is sort of the notion of a reverse diaspora, right? The thought that rather than, yeah. for those who aren't familiar with the diaspora concept, right, you have some sort of tribal people or whatever, and then they get dispersed. I mean, it's, it's the same etymological route as, as dispersion. Um, it's, it's commonly used in the, in the history of, of the Jewish people who are dispersed. But you have, you have the reverse idea, right? The thought that there is a sort of people implicitly in, out in the world, and they come together in this very reverse way. But so one question I have, Balaji, and again, you know, in the past few years, you and others have mentioned, um, so, so just, just to pull back for one second, right, like the, the weird flip that's happening is that in the past, things like media, politics, your view, values, your worldviews followed the sort of political and linguistic and, and cultural contours. And now we're flipping that, right, in the sense that we, we have a, a, a moral and virtual and idealistic community. And we're trying to make the, the physical follow that. So it really is a, a, a flipping, quote unquote, to use a term, uh, a crypto term. Yes, but it's a re, it's a reflipping. We're sort of returning in some ways, you know, you know, saying like Lenin actually said this, there's, you know, years where nothing's happened and there's weeks where decades happen, you know, um, you know, and so what was, what's happening is we're sort of going back to the future pre-1648, pre-Westphalia, pre-geographical nation state, in some sense, even pre-farmer soldier going back to hunter-gatherer. You know, there's kind of two modes of operation for humans. There is the hunter-gatherer mode where we sort of just roamed. And that's why, you know, people hypothesize that the Garden of Eden concept uh, is, is sort of like imprinted in our genes some, somehow in the same way that like a, like a beaver knows what a dam is, like that, that we, we sort of were hunter gatherers. There was this Edenic time or something with low populations and you could just walk around. Probably it was harsher than we might remember, but maybe the fruit really was just growing on the trees and, you know, you could just walk around from place to place in Rome. And uh, then of course, you know, people became farmers and you had, you know, they, they became sessile rather than mobile. And, uh, you know, they, their height reduced, they started eating grains. It basically was a more predictable food supply, but it was lower quality. Their teeth started to get messed up and so on. And then you got cities and civilization and all that stuff. And uh, now, in some ways, what we're having, of course, there have been nomadic peoples, you know, since, uh, you know, it's not like everybody's been a farmer or a soldier, but there have been nomadic peoples for a while. But now what is happening is you're kind of getting a third thing where you're starting to get the highest quality of life is for those people who can live as digital nomads, uh, where they don't have an obligate tie to the state. Their community is in the cloud. It's in the network. And uh, so, you know, one thing you know, people don't realize is that what technology has done is it's been cutting all the obligate ties to the land. There's nobody that you fall out of touch with anymore accidentally 
basically with one click, you can reconnect with them via social network or mobile phone. Uh, you know, your books are no longer heavy things on your shelf. They're in your Kindle. Uh, you can, you know, if you wanted to, easier certainly before COVID, but still feasible, you could be in another country tomorrow by just right after this call, you hit Uber while you're in the car, you book a flight, you're, you're on the plane, and then you're tapping from your laptop in, in Paris or whatever. I know that there's some stuff that's harder now because of, of COVID. So I, I, I agree that there's a partial change to that. But mobile has made us more mobile. Search, social, all these things, they've cut the ties to the land in really fundamental ways. And yet people are still sort of hovering over their historical spots without fully realizing that they're mobile now. It's just, it's kind of like Wile E. Coyote, you know, on the edge of a cliff, except, you know, you flip it around, they don't realize their potential, right? Um, anyway, so go ahead, you know, that's-, that's how I think. Yeah, well, so, no, no, I mean, I, I, I totally get it. And I myself have lived that life. Um, like when I was writing Chaos Monkeys, I lived that way when I was in Europe. But if, but again, it's, if you were to imagine a world of digital nomads, nobody would build houses, take out the trash, maintain things like the, the reality is, I mean, A, we're still physical beings, right? So like a lot of this is a little bit like the sort of transhumanism or the Gnosticism of believing in the spiritual, like the unrooted realm, right? Which to me is a very attractive concept, at least definitely when I have a toothache, it's definitely an attractive concept. I want to, I want to flee the physical and, and exist in this purely uh-huh. spiritual realm. But, you know, just getting back to like the details of it, like there's even in our day and age in which, as you said, there's a social fabric that's heavily degraded, SF being a great example of it, there, there still are common goods, right? Like those who still have, you know, public schooling, yeah. you know, law and order, like we're seeing with the Rittenhouse drama. I mean, it's it, it's hard to, I mean, it's it's fine to float as like a backpacking, like hosteling digital nomad, but at some point you have to have kids. There's things to defend, there's things to build. That's where I think that vision a little bit breaks down and, and I would wonder how it would work. Ah, yeah, so let me poke on that. Basically, one thing I just want to make make sure I'm communicating is I do like the book, The Sovereign Individual, but I believe in the sovereign collective. And so that's to say, you know, yeah, communism was a bad idea because humans are, you know, social animals, uh, or rather humans have an individualistic aspect, but ultra libertarianism of even a caricatured variety, which I didn't actually think existed until I saw some people online doing it. Like, that's also a bad idea because humans are social animals as well as individualistic. It's, you know, this is like the most obvious thing in the world, but either extreme is actually bad. And then what exact point do you have uh, on that spectrum? Um, So the sovereign collective is a group of people who move together, like what just happened with Miami, right? Miami Tech Week, this, you know, kind of nomadic community descended on the city, beta tested it and moved in. And that was not organized. It was kind of organic, but it very well could be organized. And in fact, that's, you know, this concept that I call crowd choice. And just to kind of sketch it, right? You know, there's people talk about democracy and capitalism, and these are certainly important forces that you can, uh, you know, vote with your ballot and vote with your wallet. But there's two other really important forces that are reshaping governance, and those are migration and computation. You know, vote with your feet and verify with your computer. And in a real sense, that fourth one, computation, is now upstream of the other three. Right? Your your ballot is going to be electronically checked somehow, or you're voting online, you know, with a proof of stake vote in crypto, your, your wallet itself is cryptographic, and your mobile phone is what gates your, your, your vote with your feet. 
And so, you know, when you take that on board, what you can do is you can make a little plot. Okay, so imagine that the x-axis is the cost of your vote and the y-axis is uh, like the the effect of your vote on on your life. Okay, so if you vote with your ballot, the cost is very low to you. It's just like. I don't know, an hour to go down to the polling station and pull the lever, but your impact on the outcome is roughly the probability of you being the tiebreaker vote, which is very, very small, you know, at the national level, very roughly in the U.S. it would be like, you could argue it's one over 300 something million. It's a little better than that, you know, if you take the electoral college and whatnot into account, but it's, it's very small. And so your, your cost of the vote is very low, but the, but the impact is very low. Now, we, what can you do? Well, of course, you can donate. That's legal. It's legal to donate to Democrats or to Republicans. So now your cost increases. Maybe it's, you know, a few thousand dollars. And does it increase your effect over the outcome on the y-axis? Yeah, maybe somewhat. The Washington Post a while back, sometimes newspapers will publish the price per vote. Have you ever seen that? The way they do it is they divide like the number of votes somebody got by the number of advertising dollars they spent, right? Um, and so you can, uh, you know, take those kinds of analyses where, you know, sometimes people will just freak out over even calculating that, but other times they'll calculate in a very dispassionate way. Uh, you know, for example, I think in 2016, Jeb Bush spent something like $100 more per vote than, than Trump or whatever, right? I don't remember the exact number, but something like that. So the, the price per vote, Basically, um, you know, let's say that it's $100 per vote in this analysis. You go and put a thousand bucks in, you voted with your wallet. Now you've got 10 votes. So you slightly creeped up on the y-axis in terms of influence, but, you know, really not that much. It's not deterministic. There's a huge variation. And then all the way out on the x-axis is vote with your feet. You know, go and pack up, go take the U-Haul. You're out of SF. You're out of California. You're out of this. You're out of that. Uh, you know, that could be $10,000 or easily more, you know, depending on how you count it. And uh, that's all the way out there on the x-axis. Uh, but the y-axis is all the way out there as well, because you have a 100% chance now of changing the law under which you live, right? You go from 1 over n or 10 over n probability, where n is very large, to 100%, right? n over n. Okay? With me so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have, I have a question, so, but I'll, I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, okay. So that's that's a graph that we have in our heads where the x-axis is the cost of the vote and the y-axis is the impact on your life, okay? And, you know, the fundamental thing that's upstream of, quote, democracy is the concept of consensual government, right? That is to say, the, the government must have the consensus of the people. Now, the worst kind of democracy that's still a democracy is a 51% democracy that's only generating 51% consensus, bare minimum consensus every time. And that's what we have. And that's what we've had for many years. That's basically, you know, the polarized America where 51% takes power. They beat it up 49%, 2% switches sides. They don't like the coercion. And it just kind of pendulum swings back and forth in this, you know, unstable way. What you actually want is something more like 100% democracy. The ideal would be that everybody is actually consenting to being there. They've signed a social smart contract. They have an ongoing you know, affirmative consent to being in that jurisdiction and abiding by those laws and not in the Stalinist way of just saying, oh, you know, everybody voted for the government, but rather in sort of an on-chain checkable way where they can actually exit. All right. So how would you actually implement that? So the idea is that everything I just described with the voting is with you as an individual. But what you could do is you could have, for example, a, a Facebook group with uh, with a leader there 
who, you know, like a union leader, except it's not a union within a company, it's a union outside a company. I call it a network union. And you have, you know, a thousand, 10,000, that's probably enough people who fold into an individual. And that person is then nominated to go and negotiate, not with the CEO of a company like a typical union leader, but with the head of a local jurisdiction, a mayor or a governor, or maybe in a, in a foreign polity. And basically say, look, I can bring these 10,000 people. They're all mobile. They're, they're all software engineers or, you know, designers or lawyer, whatever, right? And uh, they make X thousand a year. That's total annual revenue from the cloud of, of Y. Uh, what can you give me, right? And uh, so you, now you have a block of votes that moves together, um, voting with their wallet and their feet and their ballot all collectively. And so now what you have also is something where that same leader can go to their current jurisdiction, especially if they are concentrated today. Um, and he can say, hey, look, you know, if you don't give us better terms, I'm going to take our guys and leave. Now, this is already, by the way, what CEOs do when they're negotiating with another CEO on behalf of their respective companies, right? When when Elon goes and he negotiates with, uh, with you know, seven states for where the Geiga factory is, or when, you know, Boeing moved its factory from Washington to South Carolina, um, you know, all of these are things where, you know, CEOs are effectively negotiating with heads of state. We're just taking that out of that context. And now we're making it so you don't have to be a CEO, just a community leader or union leader. What's the point? The point is you could potentially get to the upper left corner where simply you have to do a few moves. But eventually the threat of uh, the, the credible threat of mass migration of 100,000 people from a jurisdiction who've all signed the social smart contract will be like an out of, uh, you know, out of session vote of no confidence in the current government. They would out be able, if they were rational, to project the drop in their revenues should this group of 100,000 people leave. They could look at the history to see that, yes, they did leave in the past. And what that would do is it would mean that you wouldn't necessarily have to leave with probability one, you'd leave with probability P. And so what you're doing is you're discounting that top right corner of an expensive move with 100% change in the outcome to a probabilistic move with 100% change in the outcome. This is what I call crowd choice. It's basically collective bargaining, but with governments. All right, let me pause there. There's a lot I just downloaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's funny you mentioned the Gigafactory. Like, it's actually in the county that I moved to. It's actually a couple miles north of me. And how it ended, yeah, in, in Story ah. County, Nevada, of all places, which is like this weird, wild west frontier county. How it ended up here is a whole, is a whole story, actually. But... Um, but it was a sort of negotiation with the local county government, as you said. But, but let's, okay, so I, I, I get the concept again of both voting with your feet and your dollar and, and your ballots and, and the notion of sort of consumer choice when it comes to government. But let me push back on it just. The collective, but, the collective part is the thing I want to right, emphasize, right. is doing it together. Yeah. Yeah, right, no, no, I, yeah. right. But, but just to, to cite an example, you, so you cited the example of Miami, which again is near and dear to my heart because I was actually raised there. And, you know, Mayor Suarez yep. is the mayor. I, I actually went to school with him for a while in middle, middle school. Speaking of, of elections, he, he recently re-won re re-election with something like 80% of the vote. So there's way more consensus in Miami than there is in, in national politics. But I'll, I'll, I'll cite my specific example, right? Because yes. Miami is what Miami is because for whatever reason, right, this little seed of Cuban exiles who kind of run Miami – just like said, this is our last stand. We, nobody's moving from here. Like in, in our graduating class, most people stuck around. People like Suarez, right, whose father was the mayor, stuck around and said, look, I'm not, you know, he could have gotten into other schools. He could have joined mainstream American society. He said no, P perhaps irrationally, but he said no, this is, 
this is our new homeland. This is our last stand. Whatever I will do, and he's obviously a very ambitious, capable individual, I will express that here in Miami, just I will not shop around, right? So in some sense, yes, it's true that people like you and me can sort of shop around and pick a nice jurisdiction or a nice city to live in, but it's because there are people, or I could cite probably the example of Singapore, for example, or, or Israel, where they've definitely said, this is our homeland and we will bleed and die to maintain this, right? It's because a certain set of people have actually said, we're not going to shop around. We're, we're, we're actually going to tie ourselves to this particular piece of dirt, right? And so, and it's because of that, that people can actually do things like that. That's the thing I can't quite reconcile, right? Like I, I get the business model of like collective opt-in, but I, as it's functioning now, these people are flitting around different jurisdictions that are indeed competing for their attention. But the, those people that are flitting around, they're not maintaining those polities, right? They're, I, I wouldn't say parasitic because that's a little bit too negative, but they're a little bit sort of derivative or downstream of that choice. And so I'm just wondering, how do we get to a world and yeah. how, how does, yeah, just how do you, how do you join those two, those two worlds? Yeah, so, so there's a really interesting thing here, almost like an optical illusion if you poke on it, which is, um, you know, who wins? The group that really wants it more, who has the zeal, who has the determination, etc., or the group that needs it less, that could do walk away, that has leverage, that doesn't really need it, and you need it more, so you need to give concessions, right? It's kind of an optical illusion we think about because you can think of situations where both happen. And here's how I resolve that. In the event that you need cooperation from the other party, then uh, that's where walk away is... Uh, you know, like often the best option, right? Like let's say the, the guy who needs it less can win. Let's say if, if this deal is a must have for you and it's uh, maybe meh for him, he's doing you a favor, um, then you're going to give more concessions and he's going to get what he wants, right? Typically that's, you know, it's the thing where, you know, in VC, whenever we're, you know, telling founders, this is a long time ago in the, in the prehistoric era before it was like easy to raise any money or whatever for anybody, but um, that you don't have a term sheet unless you have a second term sheet. Um, or that you don't really have a true price uh, because the second bidder sets a true price, right? And so then and only then does a founder have true leverage if he has multiple bidders, yeah? Um, whereas the VC always had multiple bidders for their money. There's always somebody else who would be pulling up who wants that dollar. So VC typically usually had more leverage in the prehistoric era. Um, so that's like one example of the guy who wants it less winning. But there's another version, which is, you know, what you just described and actually in different ways, Talib, you know, is most intolerant minority wins or uh, Zuck, you know, early in, in Facebook, he said basically the reason that they beat out all the competitors is they just wanted it more. They cared more about this. Like Moskowitz woke up every day and he would like go and index, you know, the, the Facebooks of different, uh, you know, like um, like colleges. This is before Facebook was a company remember this when the college facebook existed the hardest thing to google is the is the stanford facebook <laughs> you know i know it sounds like three proper nouns you know being thrown at you but it's basically almost impossible to find this stuff but there used to be a facebook like physically printed facebook anyway so Moscow's would go and index all that stuff they cared more and so how do you reconcile these you know i, I think it's situational but in the event that it's a bruising zero-sum competition where you do not need the other party's cooperation, but you can overwhelm them with sheer energy, that's where one and more wins. So you have to sometimes switch between these and say, is this a positive sum game where I need their cooperation? Well, that's where leverage comes in and being able to walk away is helpful. Is this a zero sum game where it's a brute force, like I win, you lose, and you know the unfortunate kinds of games that you have to avoid, but sometimes can't, then one and more wins. 
Well, right, and 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 that's my point. I mean, you're 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 gaming it out in a very rational way, but at some level, the person who wins has to be the most irrational and the most sort of kamikaze about it. At some level, I mean, my 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 other question about it, my my other sure, question about yeah. it, of course, is that it, while some people I think do like the rootless life, right? I mean, there is this divide between people from somewhere and people from nowhere, and you're sort of positing a world in which people are sort of from nowhere, and you know, they shop for a geographic identity that matches their political one. Um, but I, but mo- I think most people, who knows? I mean, in, in the fullness of time, maybe it'll change. But I think most people actually do want to belong to a certain place. Get you a leader, get you a leader who can do both. And essentially sometimes the answer is zeal. And sometimes the answer is rationality. You know, it is, it is really something where you need both tools. You need to dribble both your left and your right hand. And I know it seems counterintuitive to be able to switch it like that. Uh, but, but essentially you need a, uh, you know, a pragmatic ideologue at the helm, right? Somebody who has a long-term burning fire and vision of where they want to go, but is capable of doing all the calculations, making short-term compromises to get there, right? And, you know, by the way, one thing I do want to say is zeal is certainly important, um, but, you know, one qualifier, for example, in Taleb's thing of, you know, the most intolerant minority wins, it is true that they win often, but what do they win? They win a fundamentalist society that people want to escape from. So they, you know, if, if you're only driven by zeal, I'm not saying the Miami exiles are like that, actually. I think they're, in general, they've built a pretty good society. But um, the, you know, with qualifiers on, you know, the, the, all, all the, the uh, Miami Vice stuff of the 80s, whatever. Um, you know, I'm not saying that they've, they've built a bad society. I am saying that that zeal has to be tempered by rationality. And that's actually what, like, the best startup founders are. Like, Elon is both a passionate leader. I mean, I know Elon is being cray in some ways, but he's a passionate leader. On their hand, he's also doing all the calculations. I mean, it is rocket science, right? And that's, I think, the right balance you want. You know, look, I, would, his exact style, would, would, I, would I necessarily copy that? Not necessarily, but it works for him and it's working to get us to Mars. So, you know, more power to him. That's, I think, where we, where we want to go is not just one or the other, not simply left or right brain, as, as, as cliche as that sounds, but both. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I can sort of get that. But again, so, I mean, let's fast forward a little bit. How does this play out, Balaji, right? Like, even assuming, you know, you assume an urban landscape that's like a, a buffet in which everyone picks their city of choice. Uh, it, unless this fragments into like a, a new sort of crypto feudalism, right, which I, I don't think you're probably you're, you're probably quite speculating. Right. I, I, I guess I just I, I don't see how you resolve the tension. Right. Even if you have this sort of annealing process whereby it's like musical polities, everyone says, OK, look, this is a complete fucking crack up but you can't actually draw the line. Like there's no, no civil war is ever going to happen because there's nowhere you could actually draw the line that would actually d- divide the two camps. Like by definition, that's the whole thing. You would literally have to go house to house and like label each one red, red tribe, blue tribe, whatever tribe, right? So there's, there's no way there would actually be any clean physical split, right? And, and, and so un- un- unless you're saying like literally cities become like the Hanseatic League or some sort of medieval metaphor where every city is its own sort of, polis to use a greek analogy right i'm not sure how it would work and, and i guess if you go if you go super like you know maxi metaverse does it need to happen right if it's if if you somehow manage to actually fragment the common goods and the physical sustenance that you need like amazon prime doordash agriculture etc can you in some sense you know I, I hate to use like the example of like a DAO or something but c- could you actually join in some sense what is a virtual state 
I, I, it, it's hard to imagine because, against we still are physical beings. The rapture hasn't happened. But I, I, I guess I just don't... The practicalities of, of how this would work well here is what I'm struggling with. Yeah, sure. So, all right, so a few things. First is, uh, you know, like, you're, you're aware of this, but I'll just point this out. Like, you know, if you think about the name of Tyler Cohen's blog, he calls it marginal revolution. And the reason he says it's marginal is that a change on the margins, you do not need 100% of the world to buy Bitcoin. You don't even need 1% of the world. You need a tiny percentage of the world to buy it and move the price such that everybody else sees it happening, at least in the medium term, right? Um, and so in the same way, a relatively small number of people moving can change the world. How many people percent of the world move to the U.S.? The U.S. is only 4% of the world, right? And, you know, much smaller fraction than that moved here. Um, and, and that changed the world. Uh, you know, when, when um, that engineer, you know, I forget his name. I think it was, uh, I forget who it was, but there was an engineer that went from Microsoft to Google and Bomber supposedly, you know, threw a chair across the room, you know, because of that. It wasn't that every Microsoft engineer went. It wasn't 100%. It was, however, elite defection. And significant elite defection is enough to change behavior. And so in a sense, this is actually pretty important. There is actually a noblesse oblige aspect. Normally what this is framed as is, oh, these like evil people, they're cutting and running and they're leaving, et cetera. Actually, there's a different way of thinking about it, which is these folks are taking the hit of uprooting and moving to show that they actually take the situation seriously. They tried everything they could and now they're actually leaving. The Walgreens is pulling out of SF, right? You know, the, the stores that have been robbed blind, uh, you know, they're, they're actually shuttering and leaving. And that's an unfakeable signal to a bystander. And that's actually a sacrifice. It's certainly not what they wanted to do. They would have preferred to work it out. It's never that some elite just leaves. It is that there's another elite in that location that has driven them out. That's like a really important concept, right? You know, the, uh, there's, there's some other elite, a political elite often that drives out an economic elite. Uh, you know, Amy Chua talks about this, for example, in World on Fire. There's several books on this. Um, but but that's, a, that's an important concept. That political elite often has control of the megaphone and makes it seem like they're driving out these other folks, quote, for the people. Um, but, but that's, I think, the key thing. A, a small percentage can leave. That small percentage is making sacrifices to leave. And in leaving, a marginal revolution can happen. All right, that's one. Then your second thing was, you know, the crypto feudalism. You know, one thing I just want to remark on is basically that, um, you know, from one perspective, like the age of corporate control over the USA began in the 70s, where three media corporations were able to get the president of the United States fired. And, you know, if you read like, you know, Seymour Hersh's book, uh, you know, Kennedy pulled a lot of the same things in the 60s. Like Seymour Hersh credibly accuses him of, uh, you know, like whether it's the Illinois election or something like that, messing around with it. And everybody kind of laughed. Oh, you know, this is JFK. But with Nixon, they took it very seriously. And so you have three family owned corporations at the time owned by the, I believe, the Bancrofts, the Grams, the Salzburgers that could get, you know, the president of the U.S. fired. Right. So the corporations put themselves upstream of the state and that that state of affairs essentially obtained for about 40 years where, you know, the, the secretary of the interior, for example, you know, did something wrong. If if the guy from the WSJ, NYT, Washington Post, if they all did effectively like a board of directors vote and wrote negative op-eds on the guy, he's he's out. Right. He doesn't have a support base 
uh, as McCain, you know, once said, like the media is his base. And if the, if the, the media corporations yanked it, he, he left. Right. So the corporate takeover of the U.S. by media corporations was there for many years. What happened is that, you know, the, the rhetoric, of course, was around everybody has a voice. It's a democracy, blah, blah. Once everybody actually got a voice with social media, as you know, um, now lots of people had a megaphone. Lots of people were giving instructions to politicians. They weren't just, you know, writing a letter to the editor that could get circular filed, you know, thrown into the waste bin. They actually had a voice directly. And so now they're giving instructions sometimes that are at odds, many times that are at odds with what that, you know, like kind of comfy oligarchy would have proposed. And if you, you know, read like um, This Town or something like that, or, or, or The Party Decides, all those things are snapshots from like the late 2000s, early 2010s of how it was a sort of cozy group of folks that could determine political events. And, and then that broke down. And so, so actually what we're doing is we're sort of ending the corporate control of the U.S., the centralized control of the U.S., and true democracy is decentralized. It is something where it's local control. It's not some, you know, centralized surveillance state. I mean, you know, the fact, can you opt out of NSA surveillance? If, if you're in one of the, like, dozens of countries around the world that has, like, U.S. military bases there, is there a plebiscite that you could vote for to have them leave your country? Uh, did, did we vote for the head of the Federal Reserve? You know, did you vote for most, you know, positions in, in the federal bureaucracy? No. And so to actually get true democracy, it means decentralization. It means going back to the idea of local control and local consensus. And so, so I think that, you know, like that's why like people will try to portray the current state of affairs as, you know, benign and the future as dystopian. And that's actually the trick that all these dystopian sci-fi movies do. I'm not saying you're doing, it. I'm just saying like, that's like the stolen base, right? The, the, the trick is, you know, Black Mirror, it, it implicitly says that the future was bad uh, and the present is okay. But what if the present is bad and the future is better? That actually flips things around. And so I just want to put that out there that, you know, there's kind of a stolen base there. You know, the corporate control of America has already happened. And we're actually decentralizing that now with crypto protocols. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I mean, you're right that democracy only works. I forget this line in one of Socrates' dialogues or something in which, um, you know, he asks one of his interlocutors, you know, what city are you from or what's the population? And he cites some large number. He says, well, then that's not a polis, right? Like, I forget Socrates theorized that the, the maximum size of a polis would be like five or 10,000 people. Yeah. Like a Dunbar-ish thing. Actually, I don't remember the number. What was the scale that he said? Dunbar is like 150. That's probably- yeah, Dunbar is 150. But I mean, even the Greek polis is way beyond that. But so, I mean, certainly from the from the purely theoretical democratic point of view, I, I, I'm with you, Balaji, but, you know, I, and I know this is an overused metaphor, but like the crack up of the Roman Empire, right, devolving into sort of feudalistic dark ages was definitely a sort of net negative. I mean, it was certainly probably more democratic, I guess, but it, in terms of lifestyle, production, productivity, wealth, it, it, you know, it kind of sucked for many centuries, right? It didn't recover for almost a millennia, depending on who you believe. So I, I guess I'm a little worried I, I'm not quite as bucolic about it. I mean, one of the things you touch upon, right, is that in some sense, in the back of our minds, we have this sort of hunter-gatherer, Edenic thing, which, you know, the, the Eden picture, I think, paints it to be nicer than maybe it actually was. But it, the point is that we're living in a society that was created, you know, post-printing press, post-enlightenment, with all these textual technologies, notions of rule of law, objectivity, mass media. They, they created all, all these institutions that are kind of, you probably say crumbling, I would say at least kind of, fraying somewhat and it's it's not clear it's not clear we can maintain those institutions anymore right and certainly the internet is just is like a mass consensus destruction machine right and um well it's it's not go ahead finish it well it's just and it's 
as, as a side thing was, well, you know, I'm reading a lot more crypto and stuff now. And like all these protocols, they're always trustless. And it's like, man, what a weird paranoid world. And it's like, well, on the other hand, it's true. We are kind of are converging on that in the sense that, you know, most metrics of trust these days are far lower than they've been in the past. Um, but again, it's to me that presents, it's not so much the dystopia fantasy. It's just the notion of like more and more fragmented communities that within themselves are high trust and democratic, but outside of it, there actually isn't a sort of overarching order. It, it just seems hard to maintain that the world that we see today in, in this world of total fragmentation with no, with no consensus, with a sort of patchwork quilt of, uh, you know, decentralized political organization. So, okay, there's a lot I can say there. What, first is, I, I definitely would not say that I'm a Pollyanna about the future, uh, but neither am I a doomer. I would call myself, a, I don't know, a, a pragmatist, right? There's bad things that can happen. There's good things that can happen. I also do believe we can steer that future. Having been around, you know, like some really great founders have, you know, like, you know, like invested in some of them and, and, and contributed in my own small way. I know the future can be steered. Uh, one way of thinking about it is the sort of metaphor of the tech tree, everything that has been discovered. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto changed the tech tree. It wasn't like there was a Leibniz to his Newton. This is one guy who genuinely changed the world. Um, and, you know, every single crypto conference, you know, the, the fact that China is doing a CBDC, El Salvador, like, you know, the Bitcoin white paper, we're still close to it, but people don't understand that yet that, I mean, it's literally on par with like the Bible or the Quran or the Declaration of Independence, the Communist Manifesto. It is, it is one of the most important like documents slash movements ever. Um, and it's up there. You know, it is, it is certainly the most important event of the like early, you know, 21st century, I would argue, just in terms of its total global impact, as I said, comparable to the Communist Manifesto, just impacts, you know, um, or, or the Declaration and uh, Declaration of Independence. And so the, uh, the, the reason I say that is you're saying, you know, there's no, you know, consensus. I mean, one way of thinking about it is all of that stuff that you're seeing for like, you know, trust minimization, so on. One way of thinking about it is like the checks and balances of the founders, right? Rule of law. Okay, uh, and and kind of writing things down and having them be impartially executed. Essentially, what we found is that rule of man. You know, the 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 entire concept of the executive, legislative, and the judiciary. People have figured out how to corrupt that. You know, you you have uh, you know lobbyists, of course, and by the lobbyists are often defensive. What happens is the uh, just just like a, a journo will go and start a fight to get clicks. Often, these politicians will say, hey, we're going to regulate some area. And then some lobbying money comes in. They've got a fat you know, budget for re-election. Um, so a, a lot of lobbying is defensive, but you do. So it's not just like, oh, the corporations are always the bad guys. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. So what you see, though, is that that entire structure, the executive, legislative, judiciary, people have studied it. And we just accept that the judiciary, for example, is, is polarized politically. We accept the legislature is polarized this way, that the executive flips between them. There's a different model, which is the model of, the executive being a founder and the legislative being the engineers who are writing code as opposed to writing laws that have some imprecise outcome. And they're actually testing it on small opt-in groups as opposed to deploying it, you know, YOLO on the entire society without any beta testing. Um, and the judiciary are effectively nodes that are interpreting it in a not just impartial, but verifiably impartial way. And so, you know, essentially what we're doing is in an era where trust has become scarce, we're fortunate that computation is abundant 
And we're using that computation to build a new system of governance that actually works in this era. Now, I can pause there. Let me, if you have any thoughts on that, let me, I, I want to respond to something else you said. Um, no, no, I, I'm just hoping, I'm hoping to see how it converges. I, I do want to ask you on the topic you are doing about, which is the United States, but we can get to that after. But, but, but okay, yeah, so let's, let's loop it together. So here's like kind of a visual that I, that I sometimes give, which is, you know, you're standing in a room, imagine, hold out your palm, and there's a, a one micron length metal rod, just, you know, microscopic, just in the palm of your hand. And it, it grows 10x and 100x and 1,000x. Now it's a millimeter, just barely visible to the eye, right? Another 10x, another 10x, another 10x. Now it is a one meter rod, okay? Like about three feet long. You're holding it like this in the middle of the room. One more 10x though, and it busts through the walls, okay? And the thing is, that is a good metaphor for something which has grown a million X and, you know, pretty much the surroundings are kind of unchanged. You've just seen this thing just grow like this, but one more 10 X and it just shatters, you know, what's out there. Right. And the way I kind of think about it is like, you know, us institutions, you know, I, I tweeted this a little while ago, but basically people don't understand the extent to which, the federal government has lost control over both domestic and international affairs. Like I, you know, I had a bulleted list, but it's like, there's inflation, there's a defeat in Afghanistan, there's China's extreme bellicosity on Taiwan, there's France and this whole AUKUS imbroglio, which is, by the way, I'll, I'll talk about that for a second, because it's actually kind of insane. Um, El Salvador going, you know, Bitcoin and breaking away from the IMF and, and you know, the, the entire international, you know, dependency network. Uh, you know, 17 states suing the feds on education, Texas on abortion and vaccines. Germany was threatened with sanctions for doing Nord Stream 2. India was also threatened with sanctions for, you know, uh, uh, dealing with Russia. But both of them have basically shrugged them off and the U.S. is back down. Florida on like the financial surveillance stuff they've been putting out. So essentially what's happening is the federal government, you know, is seeing open disrespect by governors and CEOs and, uh, you know, huge chunks of their own base, as well as international disrespect by France and Germany and India and most, you know, especially China. When I say disrespect, I mean really disregard because the writ can no longer be enforced. And part of the thing that's kind of crazy that's happening now is you're seeing the ambitions soar through the ceiling, even as state capacity falls through the floor. Like, we're going to fundamentally transform America with, you know, an FDR-like program, but it's $300 million to build a bus lane and a billion dollars to build like a subway extension. And, you know, what was the great public works that came out of the American Recovery and, you know, Reinvestment Act of, you know, the early 2000s? I don't remember any Golden Gate or, you know, anything like that. It's just like a, a jobs program, a gimme. Uh, even Obama admitted there's no shovel-ready projects. Where's Trump's infrastructure? Week? This is totally bipartisan kind of thing. America can't build stuff anymore. And so, so the ambitions domestically are through the roof when the state capacity is through the floor. And similarly, internationally, you know, you have like the same sort of stupid symbolism, you know, like Blinken going in, like, you know, saying, oh, you know, Taiwan, you get a seat at the UN. And, so, and that doesn't actually do anything like the real thing. If they were serious about it, I don't think they should do this. But if they were actually serious about it, they would actually have like, you know, a, a, the quad put 100,000 troops in Taiwan. 
Okay. If they're actually serious, it, you know, like an actual superpower would actually go and do that. That's what like the mid-century serious America would have done. But it's not serious America anymore. It's symbolic America. Even this AUKUS thing, for example, just to double click on that, that's something where, you know, it was done after the defeat in Afghanistan is like this PR thing to try to switch it. And the way you can see that is when's the last time you saw a joint press conference between the president of the U.S. and the head of the U.K. and the head of Australia? Do you remember ever seeing something like that? I, I, we don't see that very frequently. Well, hold on. Like, like an improv. Uh, so I'm going to push back on this slightly, Balji, because, again, you, you've no. shifted gears from, uh, again, the, the metaverse, right, and the sort of uh, and the sort of humans fleeing into this virtual world, which, which I tend to agree with, and now you're emphasizing the need to actually build physical infrastructure. I mean, I'm sure you've read um, History Has Begun by Bruno Messias or, or read of him. I've been I mean, for podcast back in the day. And he, yes. and he cites, yep. and, and sometimes in a flattering, sometimes in not so flattering way, that Americans are most advanced down the road of literally virtualizing everything such that you live in a state of, of perpetual elective illusion, right? And you sort of choose your adventure. It's a site of very old reference. And you live in a world in which, you know, just to cite a very timely example, Rittenhouse is either guilty or he's either innocent. And, and you just live in a, a reality in which that's true. And, and the actual reality kind of doesn't matter. So it's just odd to me that, I, I mean, in a world that you're really describing a full metaverse, it, we don't need Golden Gates, right, in theory. Right? No, but that's not what I'm saying. As I said earlier, and I just want to stress, I believe in bits gaining the consensus to reshape atoms. I see. So the, let me put it a different way. Why can you not go and uh, build in San Francisco? Well, there's some regulation that stops you. If you go through the Toyota process, like the, the five whys, right? Eventually what you get to is right. that there isn't super majority support for that thing, right? Why, why don't we have clean streets? Why don't we have roads outfitted with sensors for self-driving cars? Right? Because there isn't super majority support for that thing. Right. So the whole name of the game is not to go away from democracy, but actually to lean into consensus. And where we build consensus is um, online. Right. We, we have built gigantic communities of people online that have consensus about who has what BTC, who has what ETH. These are not small things. These are the kinds of things that people fight about. It is trillions of dollars. Right. You know, people will fight over, a, you know, a, a million dollar real estate complex, but they're not fighting over you know, who has what BTC, who has what ETH. Everything financial can be put into, you know, cryptocurrency, as can pretty much everything related to identity and all kinds of other things can be put there. So the goal is rebuild consensus online. And then, you know, something, by the way, you know, I've been talking about this for years, like VR and crypto. And now today it's totally different. You know what it is? It's the metaverse and Web3, lol, right? You know, so, you know, broke VR and crypto, woke, you know, metaverse and web three, it's fine. Actually. I do think that the, the new names are better in some ways because VR and crypto emphasize the technology or the money respectively, whereas the metaverse and web three emphasize, you know, these sort of, um, you know, like, like the interactive environment where the metaverse is interoperable and web three is like the application level point being that, uh, you, you want to build the city in the cloud, use the metaverse, use VR to figure out what you're going to build in the physical world and then materialize it with all the cryptocurrency you have in that community. Right. That is, I think, the vision for going forward, not simply to live in a digital reality of our own imagining, but to 
actually do what we're doing with Burning Man or other things, but for real in the middle of nowhere and make startup cities. And as you know, I'm not just saying that I've been backing startup cities since before the movement was even a thing. I, lots of stuff I talked to you about, it's like hitting headlines or whatever a few years later, right? That's why I call them old papers, you know, <laughs> as opposed to newspapers, all stuff that we, we kind of knew about and set in motion years and years ago, right? But like Prospera, or cul-de-sac or Lore city or what Elon is doing with Starbase where folks are doing in Africa, you know, India, like the startup cities thing is actually happening. And that's a very concrete example of, you know, organizing the cloud to reshape the land. So it's cloud first land last, but not land never. Right. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, right. And, and, and Balaji, I mean, yes, you've been remarkably prescient with so many things recently, right? Like, as you know, in some of our groups, we joked that like, Oh my God, Apology is being very right. Be worried, right? It's like that's when you have to start worrying. But but one thing again, I would slightly cite on the sort of startup city. I mean, not to even mention things like seasteading, right? But it's like the history of actually starting new nation states or new cities. It, it, there are some successes, and there's been an enormous number of failures. And the successes you can point at is things like you know Saint Petersburg or Brasilia, right, in which a state uses its power and an, and an extravagant number of resources for a very by fiat reason, say, we're going to build a city here, even though there isn't a lot of reason to do it. Or you have something like the Zionist Project, right, which is 2,000 years of an exiled diaspora and a very particular set of historical circumstances that says, we're going to invent a nation here. Or the United States of America going back in this massive rebellion. But, but you can also cite lots of failed examples, right? I mean, there's Lots, Ford started a whole city in Brazil. I mean, there's on and on many examples of these sort of wealthy extravagances that have kind of amounted to nothing. And and I and I wonder if like without a frontier, you can really even imagine doing this, right? I mean, it's that's. I mean, speaking of Story uh, County, I don't know why everyone this, yes. all this weird shit happens in this county that I live in. But I forget his name. But there's some billionaire who bought like thousands of acres in Story County and plans on doing. I forget the name of the project. You probably are more familiar, but. Yep. Yeah, it's like blockchains LLC. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, getting back to the point. I, I have no relationship to it, but I, but I, I know of it. Okay. It, dude, I just came from like off-roading to this to get to Virginia City. It's it's a harsh, bleak environment. <laughs> it's going to be hard to build a city in this county. But in any case, sorry, I'll let, I'll let you respond to my charge that I think it's it's hard to, yeah, to build cities. Sure. So. so, you know, I mean, in one sense, of course, you know, like doing anything ambitious, you're going to have a failure rate. But in another sense, I mean, how many towns and cities are there in the U.S., in, in Europe, in Asia? Et like every town and city was at some point founded, right? You go to, it's like 1840-something. And the frontier point, though, is very important. Let me actually talk about that for a second. Essentially, um, you know, th this is, it's fallen out of fashion. But, uh, you know, 1890, if you read Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis, he argued that that was actually what made America, America. It could reconcile, you know, both capitalism and democracy, both, you know, people's ambition, as well as their ambition to be equal, but with the frontier where, you know, if, you know, for the time being, you erase the Native Americans or thought of them as just like another, you know, group that you're, you're fighting. Um, this is something where you had free land out there, right? So everybody's equal out on the prairie and they could go and build whatever society they wanted. You could be Joseph Smith uh, or you could go to upstate New York and it's not the West, but you could build the Oneida commune. There's all these communes that happened. Those communes were actually capitalistic before the, you know, the modern, you know, movement called communism. Communes were opt-in voluntary communities, some of which like, you know, the Oneida commune are around today and they're exporting glassware 
you know, a similar kind of thing happened, as, you, as you're probably aware, in Israel with the kibbutzes. Some of them, like Netafim, have become, you know, globally competitive uh, exporters of, of, of in, in their case, of agricultural technologies, right? And so the, the thing is that the frontier, why do I think the frontier is back, actually? Because um, the short version is the internet frontier. Um, not just the domain name, but, you know, it's funny. I used to say this for many years. You can see a bunch of my tweets. I was like, VR will make the digital frontier concept more than a metaphor. And now with the metaverse stuff and so on, people are starting to kind of see what I mean with ENS, where you can actually own uh, your crypto name, like Antonio.eth. People are starting to see what I mean. But, you know, the, the metaverse, uh, you know, ENS. And so th this all makes it more than a metaphor. You're actually owning digital property rights. And the thing is, that there's lots and lots of, you know, kind of crappy territory in the, in the physical world that you could buy and that you could modernize. Okay. Like if you look at a map of the globe, it's not like every single area is packed with super high population density. There's lots of space that you could do Burning Man like stuff. And so the, the, you know, the macro concept, I, I wrote this up in um, an article with uh, Satonier. He, he titled it in this extremely flattering way. It's like, you know, I, I, Einstein had the internet or something like that. But basically what I talked about is 1950 was actually peak centralization. The past that we think of as like the normal time period, like how humans were and we've, you know, sort of fallen away. That was actually a very aberrant time period. 1950, you had one telephone company and two superpowers and three television stations. All this ideological diversity had been wiped out. And if you go forward and backward in either direction, 1890, the Western frontier closes, 1991, it opens. If you go backward in time, you get the robber barons. Forward in time, you get the tech billionaires. Backward in time, you get the private banking era. Forward in time, you get cryptocurrencies. Backward in time, you get the Spanish flu. Forward in time, you get COVID-19. Backward in time, you have Weimar Germany. Forward in time, you have Weimar America with the inflation. Uh, and, and so on and so forth. Backward in time, you have right and left fighting in the streets. Forward in time, you have the same thing. And now, you know, if, if an astute observer will say, oh, Bali's used to mixed up stuff from the 1800s and the early 1900s. I say yes, because it's, it's not exactly A, B, C, D, E, you know, E, D, C, B, A. It's not like a, like a you know, a, a musical chorus where it happens in the exact reverse order. What is happening, though, is that going into roughly 1950, technology favored centralization, mass media, mass production, um, you know, all the stuff where the many would beat the few. And then with the invention of the transistor and then, you know, the, you know, with, with cable news and the personal computer and then the smartphone and cryptocurrency. And so it is now favoring decentralization, at least in the West. So I'll give an asterisk, very important asterisk on the East. And so what that means is that all these states that were founded on the centralized technologies of the 20th century are no longer operative. They're literally running on obsolete technology. Like they're, they're, we're founded on FDR's, you know, tech stack, you know, paper-based, you know, federal bureaucracy that assumes that there's some giant corporations to regulate as opposed to, you know, lots and lots and lots of individuals and, and, a, and a global environment where, you know, there's a global economy as opposed to just like the U.S. and the USSR. And so the, uh, the point I'm making is with that centralized fist releasing its control, the centralized fist of the mid 20th century in the West, at least releasing its control, you're seeing things, for example, why do I say the Spanish flu and COVID-19? Well, the Spanish flu was actually 10x worse. It's looking like, you know, COVID-19. We're fortunate, very fortunate that it wasn't as bad. 
But it seems like people are much more aware of it. And why is that? Well, Spanish flu was also censored heavily, right? So it wasn't just that public health was arguably more effective back then, where they could just kind of coerce people to do things, but they also actually managed to solve problems. Public censorship was also effective. And so what that meant was basically that, um, you know, people, even though Spanish flu was worse, people didn't talk about it as much. And so what we're seeing with the COVID is, uh, you know, a, a decline in centralized state capacity. And now when you point that and all these other things, you're, you're going to realize that all these collisions of the early 20th and late 1800s, you know, or, they're all happening again, but with the opposite outcome. OK, um, for example, I think they will try something potentially at some point that is similar to Executive Order 6102, the gold seizure. I think they will try that on BTC, but I think it won't work this time. Because this is the downward arc. It's like a ball that you're throwing in the air and it's parabolic up and then it's down, right? And lots of these sort of historical events, you can kind of see a parallel because it's like the centralized state losing its grip. And so similar kinds of conflicts are occurring, but with the opposite outcome. Now, how is this relevant? Well, with the frontier, and by the way, another aspect of this is the robber barons endowed universities. What are the tech billionaires starting to do? Antonio? Uh, they're building escape ships to get off the planet. Yes, but they're also, well, sure, but they're also thinking about universities like Elon is, I mean, he's joking about it, but it's starting to happen, right? So the frontier is reopening. And, uh, you know, the, the, the reason for that is, as I mentioned, you could go and build online and um, nobody could stop you. You could build a billion dollar business online. The, with, and, and the question is, and this is really the question to see is, will the startup city thing work? It's seemingly working. Like I'm looking at all the metrics and the numbers on these different cities. It's seemingly working. And if it is working, then we've reopened the frontier. We've just done it digitally. And, you know, my way I think about this, by the way, is the land, the Internet, the sea and space. OK, if you think of those four, those are four demands that people have talked about in terms of frontier. OK, yeah. Land. Basically, it's all claimed. You know, there's these weird border regions and stuff, you know, and so on. But it's basically claimed by nation states. OK. With the Internet, though, what we're doing is we're putting the entire economy online. OK. And, you know, in the same way that Windows, you know, Windows still exists, but its leverage is less, right? Microsoft is no longer the gate, the sluice through which everything flows. As the economy goes into crypto, it becomes this transnational thing, right? Where it's simply more profitable because you, you actually never had true international rule of law before. You didn't have something where a Brazilian person, Japanese person, you know, Portuguese person, Canadian could literally just trade amongst themselves and have like instant something like that is like completely unprecedented. So it's just a more profitable online community. So the economy is going to go on chain outside of China. I'll come back to that point. The economy goes on chain. And so in the same way that Windows, you know, is still around, but it just becomes like less relevant in some ways. The physical nation state, the physically tethered thing just has less and less money. Okay. And, uh, you know, part that partly that's because like all the states that are attracting these these founders like Portugal with its golden visa or Taiwan, et cetera. You know, I know Taiwan has its other problems. Let's just start doing that. They, they actually want those those founders to come there. They don't need, uh, you know, the, the coal out of the hills or the, the we aren't mining silicon out of Silicon Valley. And so physical states actually are, 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 are losing power. So you go to the Internet that allows the frontier in the way that I mentioned. And there's billions of people on the Internet. Then if you talk about sea and space, there's about, depending on how you count, between 100,000-ish, uh, you know, to a million, but maybe only over 100,000 people who are at sea at any one time, if you add up all the cruise ships together. Did you see that recent thing on, like, the 
cruise ship that would be sailing for something like 30 or 40 weeks in the year. Do you see that? I, I mean, this has been proposed more than once. I, I, I don't know the particular story that you're referring to. Yes, this is, I think it's being operated by like Royal Caribbean or, or something like that. And it's just basically you just live on a cruise ship and you just travel around the world. That's it. You know, that's the thing is like sea sitting is always called this super unrealistic thing. I'm like, cruise ships exist and they're cheaper than living in SF. You know, it already. Well, so, so let's address the frontier thing. So I, I think the frontier yeah. is definitely necessary. In fact, you know, one of my theories about why, why Israel maintains a certain level of democratic vitality is because it does have a frontier, right? Which is the West Bank. And for as contested as it is, and it's obviously a super controversial topic, it functionally internally works as a frontier in the same way that the frontier works in the United States. And um, I, I think I plan on, I'm going to Israel early next week, actually, or not next week, sorry, next year to report on this. But if you actually look at the settlements, the, the name settlements is actually very deceptive. It's not, I mean, there are guys with like living on a hilltop and it's all very pioneery, but a lot of it's just literally uh, real estate's too expensive in Israel. There's, there's too many Israelis. And so they, they move to the, to the West Bank almost as a commuter suburb to Tel Aviv, right? So it's, it's kind of moved on to the next level of the sort of frontier thing in which people are just getting onto the boat to San Francisco because, you know, New York is full and that's it, right? And like, they're not really sort of combating the natives anymore. And it's sort of the next level of the frontier, which I, I think the discourse around the West Bank hasn't quite gotten there yet because they, they, because everyone kind of, at least outside of Israel, just wants it to go away. But in any case, I, I think the frontier is an important concept. Um, but I, I think one thing I would push back on, it's not about empty space, right? There's always been lots of empty space. It's about areas of contested control, right? That's what a frontier really is, right? That's what the frontier was in the West. It, it wasn't empty, right? There are people who lived there before, but it was an area of, of contested control. I mean, similar thing in the West Bank and other places, right? And that's the thing, right? That we, we don't actually have, as, as you cited, many places of contested control anymore. I mean, the, the sea steady thing, as someone who's actually spent days on it in a boat, I mean, I, I think you can sort of pull it off and the cruise ships sort of do it, but as on a self-sustaining basis in a relatively static way, it's, it's super hard to do. I mean, the only ones who've really done it are oil platforms where you're literally pulling you know, a valuable commodity out of the ocean floor. There's no other way to do it. Or naval vessels in which you have a military chain of command. Or maybe the cruise ship thing. But again, it's hard to imagine that being a self-sustaining. Like that, that's not an island nation, right? That's still completely parasitic and dependent on stopping a report and all the rest of it, right? So, but, yeah. Oh, sure. Well, but, but no, I mean, no nation is an island. Like if any nation you cut off all its imports and exports, it'd probably die. With the, with the cruise ship, I mean, some are autarkic, but relatively few. With the cruise ship thing, basically, you could have a fleet of cruise ships, just imagine 10 cruise ships, where it's not 5,000 random passengers in each thing, but it's 5,000 people in a social network folding into a leader. That's totally possible. It's just a softer layer there. The technology already exists. Cruise ships are proven. They've been around for decades. It's not, and they're not just like living on the ocean. You're, you're right that, yeah, if you're in a dinghy or something like that, like the stuff that you did when you're sailing in Seattle, of course, that's not, you know, that's like the rhyme of the old mariner type stuff, right? You're chewing on what's it called, the, like the, the, the bread that keeps on, on vessels. Of course, there's a terrible version of it. Hard tack. Tack. Yeah, yeah Hard of course, tack. there's a terrible version of it. But cruise ships are like, they're luxurious, right? That's the whole point. I mean, or at least they advertise that. It's like affordable luxury, like Disney World or whatever, like a, a family. Well, right. But I mean, I mean, it's, it's a weird comparison, right? But that sailboat could, could go 30 days without a resupply and that cruise ship cannot, right? But it, yeah, yeah, but, 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 yeah. But, but the thing is that basically, um, you know, there's two separate things, right? The first is 
uh, you know, is it possible to live on the ocean for weeks at a time with current technology? Cruise ships show, yes, it is possible. Second is, um, do you have, you know, a port that will take you? Well, if you have, you know, let's say 5,000 or 50,000 people on a ship under a, a leader, absolutely. You know, I mean, you've got leverage, right? You, there's not one port in the world. There's N ports. Uh, and I, I know that, you know, America's ports are all backed up on, on the West Coast, thanks to, you know, whatever nonsense is, is happening there. Um, you know, Ryan, Ryan Peterson, by the way, I follow him, types fast on, on Twitter. He's basically showing what a, what a cluster the whole thing is. But yeah, America's ports are all screwed up, at least on the West Coast. But every port in the world is not. You can actually look at the maps. And so why would that, like, what, what is your, well, both, but, it, but it's not even about the port. But it's not even about the part. I mean, the, the point of the thing is not to prove that you can live on the ocean, right? It's presumably to live under some legal regime that you can't get on land, right? But even under maritime law, even when I'm more than 12 miles out on my boat, I'm still subject to American law because it's skippered by an American captain in the boat. And, 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 and if you go into yeah. a port town, you're okay. suddenly, you're also subject to their laws, at least within 12 miles. So it, 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 somehow it's not the out that I think you're proposing, which is... Ah, you know, okay. the, me, the Balaji Caliphate in which, you know, or whatever it is, right, applies. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. Sovereignty is a continuum. It's not a zero one. Um, and if you can do, like, for example, the .TV domain, right? That was a negotiation between a group and Tuvalu for that .TV domain. The Geiga factory is a negotiation between Elan and Nevada there. And every cruise ship, they've got the constant of flags of convenience. Because it's in international waters, there is a market for governance. You can have the flag from anywhere. So all you need to do is you need to do a deal with a country um, that will allow you to kind of operate under its laws, but maybe with a strike through on something. Okay. Just as an example, this is a controversial example, but a while back there was like this uh, abortion ship or something that would post off the, I think the coast of Ireland or something. And that was something where, you know, like I take no position on this and it's a controversial issue, but that was something where basically uh, you had people who disagreed with the local law that could like float out there or something and have a different jurisdiction. Okay. And so if you just think about like how many, different legal regimes do exist in the U.S. And it's, it's proliferating now, right? You have sanctuary cities for immigration. Uh, you have states that are defying the feds on drug laws, gun laws, abortion, uh, you know, on uh, now education now, uh, on, on, on lots of things, on cryptocurrency, certainly, on the ports, blah, 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 all these different things. You have these different legal regimes that are under the same government. Well, you know, I certainly wouldn't start with the U.S., but in theory, you could have uh, a floating entity uh, which did a deal with a small country and said, hey, look, we're going to be under your law or under the law of Kiribati or Tuvalu or El Salvador, which obviously has shown some innovation recently, and we'll pay you X dollars per year. And we're going to operate under, let's say, El Salvadoran law, but with a strike through on this. And you know what that strike through is? It is uh, that, for example, I just give an example, opt-in consensual self-experimentation with longevity drugs is legal. Ta-da, all right? You're, you're basically taking the existing 20th century or whatever, you're taking that legal code and you edit one thing, okay? And you basically justify that in that particular case. You say, look, bungee jumping is legal. Skydiving is legal. Euthanasia is even legal in the US. People have lobbied to make it possible for you to kill yourself, but they haven't made it possible for you to try to live forever. Right. Like, you know, Hosiah Vayner. Did you see Solana's profile of Hosiah? Uh, I did not. No, no. OK, so like Hosiah Vayner is like a biohacker 
who, you know, would I necessarily take the exact same risks he's taken? No. Do I defend his personal bodily autonomy? Absolutely. And so he's being like harassed by California and the feds for basically doing self-experimentation where, you know, he shouldn't be. It should be something where it's willing adults could consent. If you can, again, if you can consent to kill yourself, if euthanasia is legal, as many as people will argue, why can you not try to heal yourself, right? And so there's many, the, the, the thing is that everybody goes immediately to like, what, you're going to build a nuclear weapon on your cruise ship? Like, you know, they, they go to this extreme level uh, and, and most countries aren't actually that sovereign anyway, right? Like, you know, the U.S. can invade any country in the world or was able to besides, you know, China, Russia, India, maybe, you know, a few others. Um, most countries can't do that. Uh, you know, they, most countries can't build nuclear weapons. There's like sovereignty is a continuum where you can have a checkbox and you go all the way down. And yeah, technically, you know, like Tuvalu or, or something like that, it's in the U.N., but does it have the same weight as, as China? No, it doesn't, right? It's like, it's nominally a nation, but it's not equivalent. So we recognize that that zero to one of making something a nation, it's important, but you don't even necessarily need that. You could just have it be a jurisdiction that rides behind an existing nation and pays them. And the same way you pay dot two blue for its TV domain, or you pay El Salvador Bitcoin for citizenship. So Balaji, when are you, when are you gonna move to one of these cities that you've that you've backed? Or, or when are you moving to El Salvador? Like what, what when, are, you know? Ah, when is the Balaji happening and when maybe, can I join Balaji? When can I join the caliphate? Maybe, maybe I'm already there. Now, I would never call it a caliphate because, I mean, obviously it's a pejorative, you know, connotation. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing I would think about is consensual government, right? You know, every single person in a jurisdiction, ideally, should be signing, maybe on a yearly basis, the social smart contract. And I don't mean in a casual way. I mean, like, actually reading the terms giving informed consent, not a click through, but like the most, you know, uh, like, like conscious consent you could possibly give. Like, you know, for example, if, if you're building an online service, I actually do think people, if it's a really important thing, you should ask for a DocuSign and have them click that rather with an actual contract with an actual signature rather than just a click through. So you give conscious informed consent to entering a jurisdiction and now you've got something incredible where you have a hundred thousand or whatever, a million aligned people and you can build a self-driving car city. Okay. You can build a drone delivery city. You can actually materialize the future. You can do the stuff that, you know, Gary Tan and I have been, you know, talking about this on, on Twitter, but like a brain machine interface, brain machine interface, that's real. You know, you, you can literally allow disabled people to be able to communicate with their minds. You can build cochlear implants that restore hearing. You can literally have bionic eyes that restore sight and limbs. All the stuff exists, right? Like limb regeneration, you know, bioelectricity. There's amazing stuff in biomedicine. I could just like give you paper after paper. And it's always, oh, scientists have discovered X, scientists have discovered Y. Why isn't that like immediately, you know, put out there? Well, the answer is you can't have, uh, at least under today's regulatory regime, you can't have the Banting and Best era. Remember, do you know who Banting and Best were? Uh, fuck. It's fine. I'm not, I don't mean to like give like a pop quiz. Banking and Best Nobel laureates, okay, um, that essentially discovered uh, insulin uh, could, could, you know, basically uh, the, the role of insulin with diabetes and that insulin uh, could, could treat diabetes. And the way that they discovered it is they did self-experimentation and, you know, they did first they tried experiments on dogs and then they tried experiments on themselves and then they got patients and they iterated their way up the stack. It was not like case control studies, you know, you know, we do case control studies on everything other than case control studies themselves. There's regulatory science and everything other than regulations themselves, where you should have are multiple jurisdictions 
that can try different modalities of getting to the result. Like, you know, every single thing that you try as a founder or an entrepreneur, you don't put it through a case control study because um, some things have large enough effect size that you can just intuit them. Or conversely, it's something where the iterative process and this, the feedback loop of being able to quickly try something, change the formulation, try it again, change the formulation. So long as it's not lethal, so long as people have opted in, you should be able to like quickly improve the potency of things. And that's, in fact, if you go into the details of how Vantikness did it, their initial formulations, they changed them around, right? And that's a noble prize, right? That's, that's the kind of medicine that we want, which is willing doctor, willing patient, and just opt out of this gigantic, you know, bureaucratic process. Now, over the last year and a half or so, a lot of people have seen what the FDA actually is, you know, blocking the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or you know, in the, in the early days, stopping COVID testing from even happening. You know, the EUA emergency use authorization was not actually authorized. They didn't really even take it seriously. They're simply not a, not, 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 they, they are setting um, a risk tolerance as a function of their personal PR. It's not a function of your health. There's about a thousand incidents I can, I can give on this. I won't, I won't recapitulate the whole thing. I probably should write like this extremely long article on all this. But the fundamental thing is your body, your choice um, that's the kind of innovation that we could have if we had consent. And what that means is health breakthroughs that could help the whole world. So it has absolutely zero to do with, uh, you know, power. It has everything to do with the consensus and being able to legalize innovation again, being able to build these health things that I can show you all these papers that show it works. I mean, I can show you mice that look, you know, healthier and stronger in the lab. Like, you, we, it might be that everybody could be naturally ripped and not have diabetes without working out. That's probably possible, right? But we're not allowed to look at that. Go ahead. So, but, but can I ask you a random question? So are the rumors true? How, how close were you to actually being appointed head of the FDA, speaking of which, speaking oh. of the FDA, but Yeah, so, I mean, I've talked about this before. Basically, you know, like, uh, what, what should I say about this? Uh, I was offered a very, very, very senior position. Um, I decided not to do it for a number of reasons. I'm glad I decided not to do it, actually, because, um, you know, it just, it, like, it was just being a cluster and main different dimensions. Um, with that said, I think that, I, you know, post-COVID, like, it's clear that that's, like, a dysfunctional agency. Um, and I fundamentally think that you want to um, exit the FDA, not... Not simply because usually it's basically framed as, oh, my God, we need regulations or end the FDA end the Fed. Right. The problem with that second thing where I understand where it comes from, like Ron Paul's you know, book end the Fed. The thing is, you can't just end the Fed or end the FDA. They are at the center of this gigantic hub and spoke network. All kinds of stuff goes through it. Right. When you say end the Fed or exit, you know, or, or end the FDA, like that's impractical. And it can be kind of laughed at as this kind of utopian thing where, oh yeah, all right, well, how am I going to send Fedwire then, huh? Okay, well, who's going to, who's going to, you know, the FDA doesn't do everything wrong. It does have some like useful databases and stuff. There's all these pieces of paper, all this process, every, all this software in people's heads where they think that the only way of developing a, a you know, a drug is like phase one, two, three, you know, and four. They, they think of that as being as fundamental as S&P orbitals, right? So until you can actually develop an alternative in a place that they can't stop and show that it's better and then prove that out over many different proof points over years and maybe even decades, you have to actually exit them first, exit the Fed, exit the FDA, and then you can replace them. And so, you know, for example, exit the Fed, we now know what that looks like. That looks like Satoshi figuring out how to create a 
inflation-proof currency and all the stuff that people said, all the macroeconomists who are like, oh, Econ 101 shows the thing doesn't work. People will hoard a deflationary currency. They're not going to spend it. It's going to, it's all wrong, right? And the fundamental reason is that those macroeconomists, American macroeconomists are the equivalent of like Soviet macroeconomists, where, you know, as opposed to micro, by the way, just to hover on this point, you know, in a math textbook, the, the period at the end of a sentence, well, you know, the, like QED, it's, it's backed by logic. You know, the math, you know, works, you know, independent of time and place. Lots of macro textbooks, fundamentally what they've got there is something where their theorem, the thing that underpins it all, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a thing in like, I think the London Review of Books, John Lynch just showed this. The thing that underpins it all is governments are not households. Macroeconomists, you know, they, they, they know that the government can seize money. As Paul Krugman says, fiat currency is backed by men with guns, right? And so these guys said that Bitcoin could not exist, would not exist. All these normal words announce it. And a poor si mueve, right? I probably pronounced that wrong, but, and yet it moves. Yet it's a trillion dollars, right? Clearly the whole thing is a pseudoscience because they're not doing controlled experiments. And the same thing with our regulatory state. They're not optimizing type one and type two errors. They're not treating this thing as a binary classifier. They're certainly, you're not voting for them. You, you know, do you even know who's like doing these approvals? You know, CDR and CBR and, and CDRH. Nobody knows any of this stuff. Or I shouldn't say nobody, few people do. And so it's, it's, it's not, it's not uh, an optimized environment. Moreover, it's a harmonized environment where um, the U.S. effectively sets regulations for the entire world. All of these small countries, in the same way a small website will use Facebook login and outsource its login and therefore its destiny potentially to Facebook, a small country will be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll adopt the FDA or the SEC or the FAA's rules because, you know, the U.S. is doing the right thing. And that's called harmonization. Those agencies actually lobby for that. So what you've got is a situation where these agencies, a few literally unelected people who have what's called career tenure. Do you know what the Douglas factors are, Antonia? So the Douglas factors are like the Miranda rights for federal employees. Basically, whenever, you know, people know on some level that federal employees can't be fired. But basically, if you look at the Douglas factors, that actually operationalizes it. Every attempt at firing them is this giant, long bureaucratic process. Like, roughly speaking, firing somebody in the federal government is like building a house in SF. Okay, it is this <laughs> process with all these approvals and appeals and you know, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a union of federal employees, blah, 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 all this crap. And so it's this weird thing where you're in this conflict with this guy who you're trying to fire. And everybody at the office is like, oh, my God, he's so bad. He's trying to fire this person. What if he fires me next? It's not like a one and done. You can't rip the bandaid. And so instead, what people do is they just like reassign these folks. So you have something where whether you believe in electoral or market theories of accountability, these people were not elected and cannot be fired, right? That's most of the federal bureaucracy. They're also anonymous. They're not held accountable. Could you name even one of them? Are they reported on? Is there any investigative journalist who's looking at them? We have all this crap on Theranos. You know what's much more important to investigate? The FDA itself. Like the scope of its impact is so much greater. Like, you know, it, the FDA itself is why a preventable epidemic was turned into a pandemic. For example, I mentioned that they had held back the you know COVID nineteen tests. I mentioned you know Johnson Johnson, but so many other examples. Look at the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch was going to have all of this health monitoring stuff in there. FDA blocked that. That was actually reported in WSJ. Uh, you know, it was like five or six years ago. All this health monitoring stuff was going to be in there. It could have been at large scale and in lots of people's hands. You could have had that monitoring. Uh, personal genomics that was held back by them as well. Like they they you know went and interrupted twenty three me. We could have had potentially something that could have resolved the heterogeneity issue. Why is it that some people are 
you know, so hard hit by COVID and others aren't, if everybody had their personal genome now, as would have happened potentially had the industry actually been supported versus thwarted, um, you would have been able to do those kinds of analyses because you could combine self-report with the genomic background and actually pull out the, the tables, right? Maybe you can do essentially opt-in GWAS. There's all kinds of things that they held back. That's why we're, you know, years, decades away. It's like Bastiat seen and unseen, but not for the broken windows, but for, for, the, for the regulations. And so that is what we need to exit. And, you know, I can't prove to people that, um, you know, I can't, or I can't prove to everyone that it's going to be better, but I don't need to. We just need to prove to a critical mass of people who can fight for the exit, right, to get essentially independence on some corner of the world. And when I say independence, I don't mean full independence, nuclear weapons, blah, blah. I'm talking about like taking longevity pills or something like that. That is an achievable outcome given the delegitimation of the American regulatory state. People know that these guys don't know, right? They know that they're incompetent. It's the same government that's piling up feces on the streets of SF. They don't know what they're doing, right? These guys, the CDC did not control the disease. You know, the FDA did not, you know, uh, help, help stop the pandemic. They just got out of the way for the vaccine finally. Um, but these are not competent organizations. They're certainly not developing the products. It's not like NASA is, you know, the, the world leader anymore. It's SpaceX, right? So the competence is no longer part of the American state. And there's a lagging thing where co countries still sort of fold into them, but they're going to start breaking away and figuring out their own directions. And that with that decentralization is true democracy. Okay, Balaji, as, as often happens in our conversations, we've run a little long. We're almost an sure. hour and a half into it. I'm wondering, it is getting a little late in Pacific time. I'm wondering, yeah. um, I don't typically do this, but we do have people lining up to ask questions. Do you want, do you want to take questions from the audience, Balaji? Uh, I can take, you know, maybe a few questions. Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, let's see, let's see who's coming. I, I have no idea how this is going to go. I assume I can actually boo people if it gets like completely out of hand, yeah, I, you know, some, but probably some trolls or something, but let's, well, well, who are we, who are we letting up? I, I don't know. I, well, there's, there's a list. I see take next caller. Let's see. I assume this actually has some automatic queuing mechanism. John, I think can speak now. He's probably muted right now. I, I probably have Charlie from Colin like in the crowd saying, Antonio, you idiot, press this other button. He's probably going to start signal messaging me in a second. Um, invite to speak, I guess. Do I actually like manually have to invite him to speak? Okay, I'm bringing up John to the top, I think. Uh, he may not be alive. All right, take next caller. Robert. Hey, can you guys hear me? Oh, good. So this does work. It was just John who was asleep. Yes, Robert, we can't hear you. Cool. Thanks, Antonio, for hosting. Thanks, Balaji, for being here. Balaji, if the U.S. government were to do something similar to the gold seizure of the 1930s as someone who holds bitcoin like what's the playbook for dealing with that i think um you know that i think that's quite possible as an outcome um because you know they print all this money they're surprised by the inflation what a surprise you know um print trillion dollars and you know they don't like understand this yet you know it's, it's one of these things where the u.s government only has two modes apathy and panic um, what I think should probably happen is at the state and city level, there should be anti-Bitcoin seizure bills that are put in place now. And those should be effectively sanctuary cities and states for cryptocurrency. 
Um, and, I, and I know there's some of that that's happening now, but I think that's actually what should happen just to get ahead of this very sort of predictable series of events. Wait, so sorry, is the answer bullish that you think there's going to be sanctuary cities for crypto? So like, or, or are you saying just get on a plane to like any place without a U.S. extradition treaty <laughs> and take all your Bitcoin with saying, you on a I'm USB stick? What, what, what was the plan? Like, yeah, so within the U.S. as well as outside, but within the U.S., if you look at Miami, you look at New York City, you look at Colorado, you look at Wyoming, at Texas, uh, you know, at Florida itself, like, you know, there's uh, there's mayors of, uh, I think it's Jacksonville and so on. There's there's quite a lot of local and city and state politicians that are pro crypto, pro Bitcoin, pro Web3. And, uh, you know, the same logic as sanctuary cities, if you don't enforce federal immigration law because you think it unjust. The same logic as marijuana law, if you don't enforce that, well, they basically say, look, we are preemptive, preempting this. We think this would be an unethical thing. Um, and we're not going to have our, you know, state level law enforcement. I'm going to tell them to stand down. They're not going to enforce this. Right. Same way that you wouldn't, you know, the cities that just don't do deportations or they don't do, uh, you know, arrests for marijuana. You're not going to do seizures. Right. And I think that that is likely to come within the U.S. sanctuary cities. Uh, for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I see. I mean, I, I mean, you're right that there, you know, federalism definitely gives the U.S. a little bit of wiggle room. Just like you said, there's countless examples of states, you know, flouting various forms of federal law. I think what, end, what ends up happening though in the United States is once you get past a certain point, one party uses some mechanism of the federal government, whether it be the Supreme Court or the army, to impose its interpretation of the constitution on the rival faction, right? And the, the question is, how close do we get to that? But um, yeah, but that that's the centralized century. That's last century. I right. Think well, yeah. Th this is really the key kind of premise, which is when you have, if you're seeing what's happening with like education or something, when you have half the states in the union that are suing the federal government on something, you know, the federal government is itself a social construct, right? It only kind of exists if people have opted in to listen to it. it it's like a lot of people just think of, you know, the federal government as this as this like green lantern thing or whatever, it has unlimited power. It's not like that. It's not like that in Iraq. It's certainly not like that in Afghanistan. It is a limited entity. Lots of people have sort of replaced G-O-D with G-O-V, you know, like they, they, they think of it as the all father and that it's omnipotent, can do anything. This is both, by the way, like, you know, a left thing where domestically the government can do not everything and, and, and can do no wrong if it does something. And sort of also like a certain kind of neocon right thing, which is it's omnipotent abroad and can crush everybody. It's like the big boss, whatever. Um, and it's just not the case. It's, it's limited. And it's particularly limited nowadays where state capacity has been just falling off a cliff. Uh, and so, uh, you know, for, for, for good and, and also for ill, the state capacity for that federal crackdown, I'm not sure is actually there. Um, I mean, we will see. Uh, certainly, you know, you, one doesn't want to be in the middle of that, but basically, um, you know, when, when you have 27 states defying, where's the National Guard going to come from? What, those states? Uh, you know, what are you going to do? Like, there's a certain point at which, uh, you know, there's a stare down and one party blinks and we'll see what happens. Okay. Can we do, can we do one, one more question? Biology? Sure. Yeah. Th that one went relatively well. Um, let, let's see. We have D up next. D, are, are you there? Mm, looks like maybe not. Okay, we'll go to the next one. This feels like a radio show all of a sudden. All right. Uh, we have A. 
is A out. Well, people just get in the color queue and then they just go to sleep or they go do something else interesting. Okay, we'll try one more, one more person. Well, actually, well, we can just clear the queue. Yuri, Yuri, are you awake, Yuri? No. Okay, one last shot. <laughs> oh, oh, somebody, somebody else showed let's, up. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Let's have, let's have Eke. Yeah, let's wait for Eke. He's okay. I, I, I don't know him, but I, I, I've been, I just DM'd with him on, on a, on something recently like he's oh shit oh, he just he just oh, he disappeared i didn't oh. i didn't boot him he just disappeared okay well this is i'm not sure this is working that well uh okay go ahead um so let me wrap it up basically so uh and if, if folks have any questions just at message me on twitter or whatever um but uh you know my 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 short version on this is i don't think that the federal government actually has control over things I think that the future of hard money is BTC and the future of hard power is CCP. And I don't think people are modeling both those forces at the same time. It's like gravity alone without electromagnetism or or vice versa. And I think that they are both acting on the status quo in such a way that it's not simply going to flex, but break over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and, And I don't think that folks are really thinking that through. And the thing about that is if you're not preparing for that, then you're totally taken by surprise and there's a panic. Oh my God, blah, blah. but we want a good outcome. We don't want either today's anarcho tyranny where you know you have uh, unpunished stabbings in San Francisco combined with unlimited parking tickets. Uh, we don't want a possible crypto anarchy where the tyranny just goes away like the rubber band snapping and it's all chaz and it's all people surrounding cars and you know storming government buildings, whatever. That's actually possible that you know, the, in the same way that like, you know, cryptocurrency goes to this insane level, Bitcoin goes to 20,000, it comes back down to 5,000, but it's at a new normal. The chaos of 2020 is like a, a surge up and it's crashed down, but it's at still a new normal. If you graph the number of protests, riots, shootings, political shootings, incidents, it's on the rise. It's stochastic, but it's on the rise. And so 20, in the same way, the bailouts of 2008 were, you know, this aberrant thing at the time and became standard, right? Like a, like a preview of, you know, the future where everyone's like, oh yeah, let's do a bailout. 787 billion is a massive number. Now it's like a trillion here, a trillion there. Nobody even knows how much trillions were printed. In the same way, the chaos and anarchy of the, 20, of the year 2020 and early 2021, I fear that that could become um, a standard thing for the mid to late 2020s when the anarcho-tyranny is replaced by anarchy or crypto-anarchy. And that's not actually a good end state because there is the possibility of, you know, the third thing, which is Chinese control. Like the Chinese are, you know, it is just a huge mistake to underestimate them. It's also a mistake to think that, you know, their governance will be uh, benign um, because unchecked by the U.S., it's basically like a like a Han supremacist state now at this point. Right. Like and uh, so so that's the third option. So you don't want either anarcho tyranny or crypto anarchy or. Chinese control, what you want is the fourth option of crypto civilization. You actually want a decentralized center that is appealing to people that's based on a pseudonymous economy, which reduces both discrimination and cancellation, that has Bitcoin as a reserve currency, but also uses other coins. And, you know, that that seems like a small thing, but believe me, you're going to hear the term, you know, like, uh, you know, fraud, Charlton, all these people who who dislike the fact that anybody uses any other coins other than Bitcoins, like there shall be no other gods before me. And then third, you want something that's also appealing to the crypto Chinese that acknowledges that China has actually accomplished a lot, 
um, that gives something to them that doesn't just, you know, talk down to them and say, oh, the West is the best because it's not anymore in many dimensions. And so you need something that appeals to these three groups, essentially, um, you know, the folks who are currently in power, the Chinese and the maximalists, because those, I think, are the three most important movements in the world, what I call NYT, CCP, BTC. And, and I think that that decentralized center is what we need to focus on building because this current era is not going to endure for, you know, eternity. I don't know how long it has, but sometimes time moves faster, sometimes it moves slower. So that's how I think about things. If you were a betting man, Balaji, when would you bet on the crack up happening? What's the over under? What's the even odds over under? I mean, I'd be, I'd be shocked if it took as long as 2040. Um, I, I think it's like, you know, 2030 to 2035, I think a lot of stuff will have happened by then. I mean, 10 years is an insanely long time in tech, right? 2009, 10 years ago, 2010, 2011, like Bitcoin was at like, what, $1, you know? Uh, 10 years is an insanely long time. I mean, the things, by the way, that are coming up today, the forces that people now know are strong. They didn't realize were strong five years ago, seven years ago. China and uh, you know, BTC and, and cryptocurrency, those are both very strong forces. Things that are coming up are genomics, India, especially drones and robotics, very, very important. Like, you know, we didn't talk about this, you know, I was going to poke on this earlier, but basically um, the entire concept of turning labor into electricity, where printing is generalized to not simply printing out, you know, a piece of paper, but like printing out food, not in the sense of 3D printing food, but rather having a series of robots, you know, that harvest it, put it on a truck, you know, like put that into a pizza, package it, bring it to your doorstep. Every single one of those stages, I can show a robot that's doing that. And uh, no one has system integrated all those, but you could. And then you could turn the, you know, tap in Uber Eats or, you know, what have you into effectively just an actuation step, effectively printing something out or bring it to your doorstep. And you can do that for many different kinds of areas. You look at vicarious.com, you look at what Boston Dynamics is. The robotic stuff is also under, under anticipated. And there's so many other things like this, the AI stuff. We basically have many different simultaneous technological disruptions that are coming. And you sort of have to think about the world like an angel investor or venture capitalist, because it's not like you have decades for this to slowly bake in. This stuff goes exponential. And you have to think about what a world might look like that's very different than the current one and preserve freedom, democracy, liberalism, and uh, and so on in that world, and not simply assume we can take it. Well, Balji, this is the most political I've ever heard you be, you know, being pro-liberalism. As a random thing, as I think you know, I, I started this fellow thing at the Lincoln Network, which is like this think tank slash lobby group, whatever, in D.C., and I was talking with the director about other sort of tech-oriented think tanks and they mentioned one that's crypto oriented that you're on the board of directors of i went to and it's like oh my god there it is Balaji, he's on the board of directors what I, I forget uh yeah coin center coin center exactly well, for coin center. yeah yeah we found a coin center in 20 that is the first crypto policy org before people even knew the crypto policy needed a thing and um so you know yeah but you <laughs> have, but, you have faith, but hold on but on the one hand you, you totally negged like the U.S. and its prospects, be it here you are trying to reform D.C. or at least change the, the impact of the regulatory market. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, but I think it's more sophisticated than that, or at least I, I, like it's more granular. I'm extremely bearish on D.C. and the federal government. But at the state, and I think at, at D.C. and the federal government, you can only play defense. There's nothing, when is the last good thing the federal government has done? Invade Iraq? You know, what, tr- print trillions of dollars? Fail on coronavirus? Blow the bailouts? Like, you know, fail in Afghanistan. It's just like a completely incompetent, shambolic mess that, that's a cash incinerator, left or right. But 
at the state and local level, there are green shoots. There is, as I mentioned, there's Miami and Wyoming. There's Jared Police in Colorado, Democratic governor who under, you know, his former tech stars. There's, you know, Eric Adams in New York. Like there's good things happening at the state and local level. And so the second order is there are good things happening there. You should you should try to pour as much energy as you can into them and just play defense at the D.C. level. And then also, uh, you know, I'm very bullish on Asia. I'm very bullish on India. I'm very bullish on, you know, the rest of the world. The world is bigger than America. And everybody, you know, it's like 4% of the world is where all this drama has been happening over the last six years. Well, hundreds of millions of people have come online in India and in Southeast Asia. I'm investing in, you know, Nigeria. I'm investing in like Brazil and whatnot. Like there's a big, big, big world out there. And the post-American world, is coming, you know, that, that it just means that like, we have to pay more attention to other people's stories and, and, and help them, right? So I think that that's, that's my mindset is very bearish on DC. I think it's bad and I also think it's going down. Um, whereas China, I think in some ways is bad and it's going up. So simply whether I think something is bad or not is different from the forecast on, on, its, on its trajectory, right? Um, DC, I'm very bearish on, but local and city within the US I'm bullish on and what I call the ascending world I'm very bullish on. So that's how I think about it. Okay, well, on that slightly positive note, it's probably the most optimistic I've ever heard you be, but <laughs> I am optimistic. You're you're only hearing like the negative stuff, but it's sort of like a it's a constructive critique. You know, some people actually will be like, oh, no, it's it's true, Balaji. When you call me, it's like they tell me that the U.S. government is falling tomorrow. Yes, it's true. I've gotten probably a selective <laughs> interpretation of your views on things. Well, um, well, but but basically, if you think the U.S. government is holding back longevity and it's holding back brain machine interface and holding all the stuff, which I can give a lot of evidence that it is, then you know, like it, it's it's like saying the Soviet Union is killing over. Yeah, there's some really bad things that it's doing. It's bombing all these people abroad, but that doesn't mean that all Americans are bad. It doesn't mean that everything in the US is not at all. It's, it's, a little, it's like a second order. Once you go like first order, then there's a second order thing. Um, the second order, I think, gives, you know, just like sine of X does not just equal X. That is only an approximation that holds for a small, you know, interval around uh, X equals zero, right? Um, anyway, so. Cool. Well, on that positive note, perhaps we'll end. We didn't quite get to two hours. I thought we'd overshoot it by 2X, which is about what we did. But thanks again for your time, Balaji. I think this has probably been in one of the largest call-in rooms that I've ever seen. Um, and it's been a great conversation. And thanks to the manager of a call-in. You can listen to this async. I'll share the link. I'll publish it and share the link uh, on Twitter. So if somebody you know that wants to listen to it, they can listen to it later. It's not like Clubhouse. Um, so with that, I think we'll close. And thanks, Balaji, for, for tuning in. I know the, the timing situation is a little bit weird because our time zones are very different. But um, here we are. Thanks again for your time. And um, and you'll be you'll be pleased to, you'll be pleased to hear that I'm paying more attention to That's the great. drive between Thank you, you and and Chris and Dan. At some point, I've thrown the towel, and I'm taking Web three seriously now. Apology. You'll be pleased to. I'm glad because you're you're a very talented entrepreneur and writer, and so hopefully you'll uh, you'll do some good stuff here. Cool. All right. All right. Talk, talk to you later. Okay. Bye.